And yes, folks, you heard it right. It's only August. Welcome back to Mars on Life. I am your host, Ryan Mancini, and join with me, as always... Sebastian Shug, thank you for having me. And thank you for helping me realize this existential dread that we're living in, in only the eighth month of the year. Um, really, I... I would have put a gun to my head sooner, but, you know, show must go on. Hey, <laughs> so. there's still an election, and, and who knows if that'll be worth it. Um, See, that, that was what I was trying to leave the Earth before having <laughs> you know, regardless. Yeah. Uh, Sebastian, we have a very special guest joining us this evening. Uh, this is something that I've been excited about since uh, we saw Kenny and Pete at over at their studio uh, when we were on Touchdowns and Tangents. Without any further ado, uh, special guest, please introduce yourself to the folks at home. Hey, Ryan, Sebastian, Thomas Gallegos here. Uh, really glad you guys uh, invited me on. Uh, definitely glad to be part of the pod. Yeah, man. You're a guy that, you know, I, I've, I've said this to you now several times. You were somebody that you were one of the first people on my mind to bring on at some point. Uh, we've had a plethora of guests in quarantine uh we're surprised that it's worked um <laughs> and uh because it won't a lot our, of time first... at this point now right oh wow. yeah i mean our first our first guest that we wanted on we wanted to try and meet with her in person but just out of you know paranoia and you know for the sake of safety we decided to just figure well let's just try skyping it and see how it works and it works basically works, so. us living like sheep <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was, it was the, yeah no it was the best way to do it and i mean i'm surprised that it's working out well thus far i i was expecting honestly a lot more audio issues moving forward and uh if you if you happen to catch i think the last oh god last two episodes ago um i had a gag where i bought a microphone that was really expensive and that's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we're all uh, definitely yeah. uh, adjusting to the uh, Zoom and Skype lifestyle and FaceTime, oh, yeah. unfortunately. Well, and even just Zoom etiquette, like yeah, my mom's going back. Zoom needed etiquette. My mom's uh, preparing to go back to work because she she's a teacher. She works from home, and she still doesn't get it. Right. Oh. So it's just been a matter of like, oh, I got to relearn this shit, too. Like, I remember when I deleted the app when I got done with college. And that mm -hmm. was, you know, that was like. That was like going to Mordor, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like I'm end, end of the journey kind of thing. But, yeah. Yeah. I got nervous uh, a month into the pandemic when uh, it wasn't just Zoom work calls. And all of a sudden my family had downloaded Zoom. That's when I knew things were about to get a whole lot of zoomy for the whole rest of the duration zoom and skype they're they're certainly saviors whether it's artisans like us or uh political campaigners like some of us so it's it's however you slice it and dice it um well since we do have you on i guess uh you know part of the reason why we we have you on is that you're a phenomenal illustrator and cartoonist and you've been working with a lot of different news publications and definitely capturing southern california in a way that i think people ought to see that i mean they they ought to see the the kind of taste that you have when it comes to replicating our world replicating our society and delivering it to people in a way that's very 
straightforward, but it's also there's always something extra. And what I mean what I mean by that is there's always something that is very illuminating, very heart wrenching, very hilarious, and it's it's it could be any one of those things typically. At least that's how I typically respond to your artwork. Um, I guess to kind of start off, I guess where how did you kind of get started uh on your path to uh being an illustrator oh well uh thank you so much for those words i mean i really appreciate it and it's uh mm-hmm. you know with me out with without me ever uh throwing any of that out there trying to you know find the words to encapsulate all that you you really did an incredible <laughs> job of of uh hyping me up and uh making me uh you know feel good about what I'm trying to do or what, what at least I'm, you know, trying to attempt to do. There's, Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely a lot of doubt when you do any of these political cartoons or any illustrating to begin with, uh, about the messaging or how it might be perceived or, uh, how, how people could misread stuff in some instances. So I definitely appreciate the, appreciate your words right there. Uh, You got it, man. You know, uh, my my journey's been really crazy with the illustrating. You know, I uh, I stopped drawing for a long time. Uh, got back into it once I was at the Sundial. Oddly enough, my first uh, semester at the school newspaper there. So at uh, Cal State Northridge, you know, got a job at the Sundial. Uh, pitched a few cartoons, and I had actually shown my uh, fiance who, you know, we've been together for 10 years now. She was with me when I was, uh, you know, grinding through the days at the sundial. And mm-hmm. I showed her a few of my doodles and I showed her some of my, you know, illustrations that I had done. And she, you know, kept on pushing me to pitch them and, to, you know, get over my anxiety of pitching and, you know, being turned down. Cause that's my, that was my biggest uh, mm-hmm. hold back. I was so afraid of, uh, not only writing for the paper and reporting for the paper, but also, you know, doing illustrations or cartoons. It was such a self-conscious thing. And it's still such a thing that I deal with now, you know, but mm-hmm. she helped me so much understand, you know, the importance of what I was trying to do. And, you know, of course, the first uh, political cartoon or first cartoon I ever published was the one in the Sundial after uh, uh Mike Brown was killed. You know, I illustrated the Ferguson Police Department all in KKK garb, all dressed up in Klansmen hoodies, uh, attacking and beating protesters, peaceful protesters. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it took it took a lot out of me to even do that cartoon and get the backlash, you know, from friends, family, people I didn't know. Uh, it was my first ever thing published in the Sundial and they were receiving, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook messages saying that from alumni saying that, that they had to delete this and mm-hmm. just a lot of other stuff like that. So those first leaps of getting over it and, you know, having the right people around me to push me and, and help me feel comfortable with what I was doing and, you know, keeping me you know, le- le- just reiterating, you're, I'm trying to get the message out of mm-hmm. of what, you know, what political cartooning is and what essentially comedy is in its greatest form is, you know, people that are 
David punching up at Goliath. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, what activism is, is unfortunately the story of David and Goliath. When you intertwine comedy and activism in those elements, I they, they all just connect so much to me. Yeah. So when when all of it came to, you know, all of that that point of me understanding what my message was going to be and how I was going to get it out, it ended up being one of I'm going to try to do my best to illustrate punching up at power and showing how power is corrupt. And of mm-hmm. course, the first instance of me being able to do that uh was illustrating the police department in Ferguson and how they abused their power and, and were judge, jury, and executioner and killed Mike Brown. And uh, to me, that, that you know, it changed my perception on so much stuff being, you know, frankly, a, sub- a, a suburb entitled privileged person, you know, where I grew, grew up and where I come from. I'm from Palm Springs, you know, down mm-hmm. in the golf course area and where all the, you know, old retirees in Southern California live. So <laughs> I, I've lived around entitlement my whole life and have seen how it can really operate and how it can, you know, make people uh, perceive things and how, you know, they can they can all live in privileged lifestyles and not see uh, how they're affecting other people mm-hmm. around them and their community that don't have those same things. So it's just, it, for me, it's all come down to, understanding where power is and where you know i can use my voice and 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 trying to attack that power and i that's what's interesting is that you get you get afraid that you're going to be uh perceived as somebody that's radical or combative when really Mm -hmm. you are but you are towards uh people that are being radical and combative and oppressive you know so it's it's a it's an interesting thing where you try not to stump over what you're doing and how you're doing it but every day i feel like i'm trying to continuously get the message out there and mm-hmm. finding new ways to do it. it you know especially when you're at you know kind of our age range because you're remind me your age again you're 20 27 Seven, I uh, yeah, huh, see, I see. Yeah, I'm on the right track. Um, <laughs> no, I, I was about to uh, I was about to mute the phone and ask my fiance because sometimes I forget. That's how <laughs> out of control the days are nowadays, dude. Oh no, I I had the same issue earlier. Uh, my sister and I forgot uh, whose turn was it this week to take out the trash and whose turn was it this week to uh, empty the dishwasher. So it's <laughs> all of us. Um, I was going to yeah. say, you're, you're 25. Just take out the trash. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it's such an issue out of it. Hey, you know what? Once you hit 25, like, everything starts to fall apart. I'll I'll just, I'll leave it at that. To kind of be at that age where you're confronting power, but you're also, you know, working with a school newspaper. And, you know, obviously, there were a lot of things that were going on at that paper that we don't need to get into in this episode. Uh still waiting on kenny for that one um but it's being yeah. it's kind of being in that environment and having that kind of you know backlash and that kind of reaction it, it's you know i because I, I remember those days it was very daunting but at the same time it was sort of like imagine every 
MAGA troll you've ever encountered on social media, except they were only one person. Like, like when I was an editor at the sundial, that's the way it was. It was like, I only had one person, you know, nagging me about things and saying, well, this is too liberal or this is too conservative. And it was kind of like, look, dude, I'm just, I'm a college editor. Like I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. It was always always like the same two guys commenting on. on. Exactly. Like it's college, not to mention this is where, and this is something we talked about um, in one of our last episodes with, uh, with Heather, which was talking about schools and how, you know, you go to school to get an education, but also to kind of expand your mind. And sometimes even when it comes to imagery, you kind of have to, reshift yourself a little bit and feel maybe feel uncomfortable i mean you know very quickly i'll, I'll mention <laughs> uncomfortable, uncomfortable to the point of like surviving is your now mo <laughs> well like, that's that's my life now that's my life now but it, it just kind of seems to me like the people that were ever critical of you it's like look he's making a message through the artwork say whatever you want feel however you feel all all art is subjective but the messages you were, you know, for the lack of a better term, broadcasting, they're still pretty damn relevant. You know, a lot I mean, of the stuff that you did back in the day, they're really relevant. It's it's kind of amazing. You know? I wanted to ask, too, just sort of as a follow up, was there ever a point when you, you know, you did your artwork? And I know you said earlier that you felt, you know, a bit of self-consciousness when you posted it because you didn't know or at least you didn't expect the reaction you were going to get from people, you know, potential right. or otherwise, because you can't predict that. But was there ever a moment where you sort of just suspended your expectations and just said, you know, for lack of a better word, fuck it, and gained that confidence? There definitely was. I mean, honestly, just going through with it was that moment and pressing send mm. and, uh, you know, like I said, I'm so extremely lucky to have people around me that, you know, it, it's funny. You can say as much as you want. I'm lucky to have people around me that supported my decision. But of course, like everyone, we have people that are also going to tell us uh, not right. to do it or mm-hmm. that are going to doubt, you know, your motives or tell you, uh, you know, they're going to tell you maybe this isn't in the, your best interest. You know what I mean? So. I had to deal with a lot of those conflicting messages because I'm one of those people that uh you know i i was raised by a committee of people that all are so influential to me from you know uncles to uh grandmothers to uh brothers so it it was one of those things where i wrote my op-ed about uh officer wilson that killed mike brown and how he should have been indicted and charged with the murder and I included that political cartoon with it. And mm-hmm. after I finished all that, you know, I sent those mock-ups to all of those people that I, you know, trust. And uh, even if they don't agree with me 100% politically, I can trust that they'll uh, read it over and help me edit the sentences. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky to have uh, some people like that. And uh, when I got those reaffirming messages of, this is good, you should pitch this, and then I did pitch it. And then when you have a structure uh, a structure as flawed as the Sundial, the school <laughs> newspaper, uh, still one, though, that is willing to take some risks, I'll give them that credit, 
as limited as those risks might be afforded to the student journalists that are working ever so goddamn hard there to mm. deal with the bullshit of people above them, but that's for another day. But when looking back at the Sundial, they did take a risk, and I'm lucky for them because uh, them taking a risk on publishing that cartoon and that piece was them taking a risk on me. And it was me taking a risk on what I wanted to do for my future. I wasn't even mm-hmm. a journalism major at that point. Um, oh. I was still a uh, production uh, film major. I wanted to go into film production and possibly film writing. So oh, that's, wow. what, I, that's mm-hmm. what I, yeah, I finished my first uh, year at CSUN with all film credits. And then hmm. uh, the Mike Brown murder happened and... I immediately, you know, I think I I probably sat there and watched, uh, you know, broadcast news, CNN, MSNBC, just every different channel, uh, uh, except for propaganda, Fox News, obviously. <laughs> but I just consumed so much about the Mike Brown situation and heard so much from, you know, all these influential voices that I frankly had been so ignorant to never even pay enough attention to because of how little things like that affected me, you know? And yeah. uh, I, I just remember feeling so uh, motivated to tell those stories, but to not, to not be, you know, the voice of those stories, obviously, because I can never be that, but mm-hmm. to be somebody that could help, you know, highlight those stories, uh, help shine a light on those stories, somebody that could help facilitate those stories, uh, any means possible, whether that's me producing, directing, writing, uh, editing, uh, or illustrating, you know, so I ended up changing my major and wanted to, you know, do journalism and do, you know, I wanted to really do documentarian uh, type of work because uh, I just saw, you know, the connections between film work and storytelling and journalism, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, things kind of just spiraled into the sundial and uh, my love for journalism and understanding how important it is to, uh, you know, be a journalist and one that, you know, emphasizes telling the truth. And yeah, it's definitely, it's been a, a whirlwind of me coming to that full conclusion, but sorry for all the long-winded answers for all these things. I just feel like there's, <laughs> oh, it's, no, there's no, definitely no, context to them all, but it's <laughs> sometimes I feel like I provide too much context, but yeah, that's, that's for sure how to, how to really illustrate how I came to want to use, you know, uh, not only journalism, but uh, cartooning and political cartooning to get those messages out there. Did you ever feel like it was tough to to get an edge in sort of the cartoonist illustrator or politically illustrator world? Because to be quite honest, you you popped into it at a very opportune time where there was a lot to talk about and a lot to portray in politics in illustration. So was it hard to find subject matter? You know, I think, or did it all one just of come, those, it came to you then? It's, it's definitely, it's such a tough question because you're, you're trying to think of like what has inspired some of the things that I've even done the last few years. And to be totally honest, there was such a, I don't know how many times I drew Donald Trump uh, from <laughs> yeah. you know, the beginning of 2015. <laughs> that, that's uh, yeah. That's what I'm kind of alluding to because 
It's, it's exhausting. The Trump jokes, <laughs> no, since 2016, the Trump jokes have been hilarious. But I think, you know, speaking honestly, did you ever feel like when you made something at the expense of, let's say, Trump or uh, fucking insert Republican name here expense, did you ever feel like it was sort of done to death? Or did you feel like you had your own unique spin on it that would sort of tread new ground? Oh, I wish I could tell you that I had my own unique spin and that I was able to, you know, facilitate. I, I don't mean I don't mean to ask it discouragingly. I just, no, no, I really. I'll, this I, is such a great. I think this is a yeah. great question because it can also it can also, <clears throat> you know, bring. Uh, it can also bring about how artists sometimes uh, reach for content or reach to put out stuff. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. So exactly. like a case in point for that would be like, <clears throat> you know, at the height of the Putin loves Trump messaging in 2016, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You saw a lot of political cartoonists doing the whole let's make Trump and Putin make out or let's illustrate Trump and Putin, you know, doing scandalous things together. Do you know right. what I mean? And what it became a theme, you know, and of course, I'm going through my doodle notebooks and, you know, you find yourself like doodling things that you're just like, why would why like this is never going to fly. This isn't something that I want to put out there. But this is like this is an imagery now in my mind because so many other people are putting it out there. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it, it is interesting how so many cartoonists ran with that type of imagery and you're like, you, you try to avoid those obviously awful tropes and things that shouldn't be used and you try mm-hmm. to stay away from them. And I think it's important for a lot of you know people to understand that their jokes that might have been funny in the 80s weren't funny in the 80s, but people still thought they were. And now they're yeah. definitely not funny in 2020. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, so there, there, like I had one uh, where I drew Trump uh, ice skating, and I mm. think I sure, I think I still have it. I still have all of my cartoons from 2015 and 2016. I'm like a hoarder with all my stuff. Hey man, but, do not, do not get rid of that. I, I know, <laughs> I know it's tempting. And, and if I could leave, if I could put any sort of advice as a as sort of a takeaway it's do not throw away your early shit because i hate my early work with a passion it'd be better suited uh for kindle in my fireplace but you know it's it's refreshing to see you know an artist like yourself be comfortable with how far you've come because i gotta be honest i see myself in those shoes of not being able to draw something exactly perfectly and then just immediately giving up where the only thing I had to do was just find my style, you know? So it's very, you know, it, it, it brings a tear to my eye, honestly. <laughs> it, no, it should think, be noted too that never... Sebastian does illustrating as well. I think that's where it's, he's, he's kind of coming at it from the point of view of he's kind of been in kind of the, in a similar yeah. boat. I think, I think you should never, uh, forget that you know illustrating and you know cartooning and any of that stuff it's it's just like writing it's you know it's all oh, yeah. practice and repetition and you already know that's like i i didn't even start again until i was you know 
20 you're 19 years old like it, it, mm-hmm. it, it was kind of crazy how late i got back into the game so no i think it's mm-hmm. never too late to get right back into it so i think I, i'm already i'm already uh, expecting some good uh new political cartoons and stuff from you sebastian for sure <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm i'm honestly ready to roll but uh <laughs> no i mean there's it's just the amount of material that's out there it, it really is a treasure trove of you know it, it's opinion pieces is what it is and while many of them you know i see a lot of them from both sides of the aisle and many of them they come with I don't want to say it's bad taste, but it's done to the point where it's just I think they value shock value over anything because, you know, they want the engagement and the clicks. But when Ryan showed me your work, when you found when you end up when you ended up finding your edge and finding your avenue, how were the opportunities afterwards? Because I know a lot of people when they decide that they want to become artists whether or not they go to school for it or not, the, I mean, the process is ideally 50% artwork and 50% marketing. And I feel as though people stop at that latter portion because they're so concerned with making art. I mean, I can only attest from my experience, right? And, you know, fortunately I've, I've done both, but, you know, how was it for you when you began? Oh man, I, could, I couldn't even lie to you. I am like, uh, the beginner's beginner of trying to understand, you know, pitching and invoicing and, you know, ed- the editing process and how much time I'm supposed to dedicate to a project or, you know, if I'm over dedicating myself to a project and badgering somebody about something. Uh, you know, just recently, I've had the opportunity to really uh, collaborate and throw down my first actual comics for publications uh, one of them had come out for la taco and then i've got another one that will be coming out for another publication uh, hopefully within the next month or two so it's definitely been a learning curve for me with just trying to understand taking my art and then making it you know applicable to whether it's twitter instagram print like the website just all these different forms that it needs to be consumed on i'm such a a newbie with it that i i'm so overwhelmed that i have no idea what to do so for Mm -hmm. me it's become it's been definitely a learning process of all of those things and um you know i had i i probably could have been better with you know taking advantage of where i was back in 2017 2018 but I had, you know, different things happen in my life that slowed down my pro- process artistically that kind of, you know, took away my time from art and political cartooning. And I was mm-hmm. so burnt out from Trump and the administration. I can't even lie to you. Mm-hmm. I, like I had said earlier, I, I had drawn him so many times and I've drawn him doing every stupid thing imaginable. <laughs> and I... I was so disgusted with it and over it to the point of not even wanting to draw him ever again, which ended up being me taking a break from cartooning and illustrating mm-hmm. essentially for almost a whole year, I feel like, you know, okay. so or at least on that, on that level, I was still doing it in some capacity for one of my other part-time gigs, but not in the political cartooning uh, aspect. So for mm-hmm. me to come back into political cartooning, I've been, 
I'm not even going to lie to the the unrest, you know, the last few months from the pandemic, the response from the country, you, uh, you know, the continued uh, protests after George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor and so many other people that are having their stories amplified because of how insane all this stuff is, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I've honestly been so, I've been, there's been another passion in me, you know, brought, brought back up and I have these new tools that I've utilized to help make this art. And then I've been really lucky to have a platform like LA taco that I do marketing for. So I'm already mm-hmm. there on the marketing and membership uh, level. They have a membership where people can sign up and we send them merch and uh, they get perks from us and really cool incentives to, you know, help us continue to create journalism in Los Angeles. But uh, editorially, I haven't been a part of LA Taco until just recently, and I'm mm. way too lucky and fortunate to, you know, be given that opportunity. So, you know, yeah. I had one of one of the writers reached out to me, Lex uh, Olivia Ray, and he asked me if I would uh, illustrate this, you know, comic on the murder of Andres Badardo, and <laughs> it was uh, an opportunity for me to really collaborate with somebody that I admire on a writing level and editing level and uh, the notes that I kept sending him back and the notes that he would send me back. It was, it was really uh, therapeutic and necessary and it felt so, you know, humbling and really honored to be able to try to raise awareness for such an outrageous and heinous act of mm-hmm. cruelty that was done to Andres. And, you know, I've, I feel so, it was just like another one of those things, you know, I would never want to compare Ellie Taco to the sundial, but uh, <laughs> it was another one of those things where an established place gave me the opportunity to publish something, you know, right. No, right. That yeah. Some people might be annoyed about and some people, you know, well, would, that that's uh, just the that's just the opportunist in a, you know yeah. and any artist and i mean i i hate to i mean i'd hate to take pot shots at the sundial because i know that that's your genesis but if another <laughs> well if, well bottom line if another off arrives at your doorstep yeah take it you know it's i mean i i feel like God, I feel like it's very much slim pickings when it comes to, you know, art actually being represented. Uh, you know, for the for the 100 submissions that would go to the sundial and you could both I'm I'm positive attest mm-hmm. to this. To the 100 submissions, uh I would venture to guess less than half would actually be considered, let alone printed. So mm-hmm. When we look at something like someone's art, where in the Northridge area, at least at on campus, there's an abundance of artists even getting their own department after the earthquake, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to be showcased. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen flyers up around buildings and everything saying like, oh, you know, we'll work for XYZ. And... Honestly, this this just brings me back to a communications class that I had where I was arguing over fair wages for artists where they aren't being paid shit because they would rather have that exposure and minimal pay. Well, they'd rather have moderate 
you know, adequate pay, but in order to get their art showcased, you know, it's a catch 22. It's like, you know, I'll, I'll showcase this, I'll publish it for, you know, pennies on the dollar. And you're just going to have to accept, you're going to have to uh, pray that this exposure is going to catapult you somewhere worthwhile. It's no, I think you're, you're definitely like, uh, you're, you know, you're tapping into the sentiment that I've definitely, you know, I've had, it's just, I've it's had, very, it, it's shitty is what it is because it's like, you know, you spend all this time and effort on it and then it just, it doesn't get noticed. Right. Yeah. I mean, since it's, it's kind of like the gig economy, you know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah. you're kind of highlighting how I felt with it where, you know, a lot of artists and illustrators are obviously treated on a gig by gig base basis and not, you know, not employed, not given benefits. With AB5, it's it's a whole lot worse in terms of being a, a, a gig worker and even being considered an employee, you know, mm-hmm. in, especially right. in the state of California. Um, yeah. You know, within the, the world of journalism, it's it's like that, you know, it, it, what Sebastian, what you were just saying, it's it's very much like that. I mean, to be to be somebody that's trying to freelance and, you know, you don't even know at the end of the day if you're ultimately even going to get paid. Like that's probably me, the hardest part. Let me put it right. to you this way. Let me put it to you this way in a in a skyrendingly nut slapping way. <laughs> I recently oh no, oh, and this hurts where where it really counts. I recently started well, not recently, I did it a few months ago, but I have been writing for this website. And it is a sort of like a pay-per-click thing where it's like the amount of the amount of readers you get equates to the amount of money you can make. Yeah, I I did that uh, back in 2018. Yeah, this one is more out in the uh, the mainstream. It's it's medium and medium is a very it's a very user submitted website. Very one. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, cool. I write three little short quips. You know, I think that it's good practice at least. And, you know, if, if not anything, this whole story inspires me to write more because I just, I like doing it as a publisher. I get an email saying you have a royalty statement available and I'm like, okay, sweet. Uh, one cent. (laughs) I got one fucking cent, but it's just, Apparently, I, number one, I didn't know how this worked at all because I, you know, it, it doesn't show you stats per se. It just kind of gives you a base total. And I knew people were reacting to it because I had posted it all over my social media and everything like that. But I'm just like, wow. It, again, it's not that my work sucks, you know, because object, objectively, I don't think so. But, <laughs> you know, not to not to toot my own horn. No, don't worry. But, that's but a, no, I'm that's, that's like I was saying, I have to tell myself that every time before I submit anything. So it's like, well, so much for doing this part time. Well, I, I feel like it's just another one of those like everything just gets lost in the noise. You know, there's so much going on. And especially with a platform like Medium, you know, it's so like I can't imagine but, but the that's, amount of things that are published every single, you know, hour yeah. by minute, you know. No, yeah, and that's just the kind of thing that I was expecting because with everything going on in the world, you know, the the contrarian opinion, hey, look at me, would I, I suppose as most conservative pundits would say, they're counterculture. 
the the counterculture <laughs> stand would, would be anything not political. Okay. Right. And right. I sort of shifted my focus into other topics, thinking that okay, maybe I have like an edge. You know, because every single thing posted was about, you know, how bad Trump was, how bad the Republican Party is. Uh, white people could work on, you know, maybe 10 to 20 steps of fixing themselves. And it's like, OK, let's try another avenue. And apparently it's not what the people want. You know, it, it, it's it's hard to stand out amongst the crowd when the crowd doesn't even want to stand out. Where do you go from there? I mean, you obviously have experience with it. Um, I kind of want to get Ryan's take on it because I don't think you've ever worked off commit. Is it commission? I'm not sure. Well, I've, I've definitely done some freelancing. Um, and, and I won't say who specifically, all I can say is that I'm, I'm very, uh, <laughs> I, I will not acknowledge, uh, the, the people that I worked for, but <laughs> it was freelancing work in the sense that it was meant to be like a uh, what's the best way to put it? it? It was basically meant to be like a test to see mm. whether or not I could actually be a reporter. Now, mind you, they they were quote unquote testing me while I was already working at a newspaper. Oh my and god! See, now, is, my, and also, oh. and and the Don't thing is, is that after yeah. after this freelancing job. I finally said, you know what, I need to get settled somewhere. So I went to a different publication that I also will not mention because they don't deserve to be mentioned. It was the same thing. And I was trying to become a full-time employee. And it's kind of like, look, I have my college degree. I've already been working at a local uh, community newspaper. You know, I was looking at New Horizons. I was looking at getting out of Santa Clarita. And, you know, clearly uh, COVID put a number on that one. And, you know, it, it was kind of like, well, well you sound was, jaded. It, it was it was but it was just ridiculous because it was like I I did my interviews. I wrote up the story. I I think got some pictures mm. and I went through about a week of being dicked around until I was told, sorry, we're not going to hire you. But then I was asked two other times to write for them afterwards. Now, oh, in man. between being called back and in between being told that I wasn't going to be working with them, I had to plead this guy over the span of a month for the money that he told me I was going to get for the story. And it was it was to the point where I was calling him, I was emailing him, and I didn't know where he was. So I ended up driving to their newsroom in person, and I said, hey, where's your editor? Because... <laughs> Where's the fucking money, Lebowski? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that was, that was pretty much it. And, you know, and I was I was nice. I was cordial. Um, but I was basically like Stewie Griffin saying, where's my money, man? Where's my fucking money? And and they were like, oh, he's on vacation. And I'm like, oh, gee, how convenient. Uh -huh. So ultimately, That's I did. My, I did get my payment, but it was kind of like, dude, why? Why didn't? Why wasn't the, why didn't I get this sooner? And, and then with the next job that I ended up getting that was full time, it was like, really, you, you're going to make me. And I just remember one of the publishers was like, oh, well, we run things differently here than at the Saga Signal, which is laughable because, A, it's never been called the Saga Signal. And B, it used to be called the Newhall Signal, but it's not Newhall anymore. Therefore, it's just called 
of the signal. So for, <laughs> for a newspaper publisher, you're really bad on the facts. No wonder Trump calls you all fake news. Like it's ugh. But it was anyway. That, that's my long. Sebastian, Sebastian. The theme is that freelancing is not easy right now. Sure. But see, but see, that's the thing. And and we had an episode dedicated to this when we were you know sort of figuring out what to do in the pandemic, and. You know, right. I, I could only give my personal answer, which is everything and anything um, without remorse, because to go uh, to to speak a little bit anecdotally, when I first started off in this industry, it was strictly illustration. And then I got into writing and then I got into publishing. And, you know, now I do that. Um segueing from that in this pandemic you know i started doing things like making music obviously doing this with the podcast narrating and with so many avenues for freelance work you'd figure one avenue had to be not only profitable but also not as tapped into because you'd think okay you have so many people now staying inside i would venture to guess maybe 40 percent out of everyone is artistically inclined in some maker you know maker model everybody can't be doing the same thing right so i think well what you're taking into account is a motivated workforce but uh they're all motivated within a system of you know extreme hyper capitalism yeah uh, that that really only gets money put into the pockets at the top so oh man the issue really with these companies right now is that they're all you know, uh, click, uh, garner attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too much stuff is really substance based on a lot of these websites. And uh, oh, yeah. a lot of publications are, you know, going under and a lot of, uh, frankly, alternative and indie publications are going under because they're, they're, they, they all sold themselves to the video model that Facebook and so many other social media sites said mm-hmm. was the future of journalism, you know? Mm-hmm. And yep. a lot of people fell for that. Oh, everything has to be a video now. It all needs to be yeah. a video. Make everything it a video. A vlog and or something exactly. like that. And that, yeah. that honestly, I mean, instead of pivoting to podcasts back in 2010, 2011, and everyone going full on, let's do video, that was... That was my, uh, as somebody that loves podcasts, I was always annoyed by that for sure. But well, the, it, see, it, it's to so, see what that's done to media, though, is so important to remember. But it's, to remember the people that reap those benefits and the people that don't, that's like really important to remember. Yeah. It's, it's just so ironic because, you know, everyone and their mother who has a 2002 Dell tower and a shitty MIDI microphone thinks that they can make a podcast. Um, especially in this pandemic, because unlike things like video, you know, anyone can record their voice and then publish it online. And I know that we've had an episode talking about this, too, when we were talking about the artistically oversaturation of markets, mm-hmm. the prediction of how that would turn out in the corona, amidst the coronavirus, which, surprise, surprise, isn't stopping. Um, you know, the ruthless capitalism of it all is extremely irritating well not only for the fact of hey we're doing this solely to make a quick buck but also um like you said substance what fucking substance you know oh the thing that mm-hmm. you're trying to tout thinking that 
uh, what I'm making is engaging content. I don't know. Maybe it's me being picky. Right, right. Because no, no, I know what you mean. For, for all of my life, I've tried, you know, I've tried not to be a contrarian. And then once I started doing satire full time, it was like, well, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of bread and butter. So you can't really escape it. No, I think there's so many. I mean, it's yeah. satire is becoming so, uh, it's so hard to even uh, fathom trying to pull it off in this environment. And, you know, uh, this the way that the culture is, the, mm-hmm. you know, rush, oh, yeah. the rush to normalcy that we're dealing with with the coronavirus um and the you know hygiene theater there's a really great article in the atlantic i wish i could remember the guy that wrote it who wrote it but uh if you go to the atlantic there's a great article about hygiene theater and really it's just about you know the united states and a lot of the you know frankly mostly capitalistic organizations within our country that are posting videos of them spraying movie theaters down and spraying the seats down with mm-hmm. substances or, you know, football players walking through uh, a little metal detector that sprays them with the substance as they go onto the football field for the Denver Broncos the other day. As, I mean, if, they're not, these... as if they're not going to tackle each other like exactly. 20, 20 seconds later. So our country is so obsessed with this rush to normalcy and I mean, coronavirus is the ultimate example of that with the hygiene theater. That's just a Band-Aid on top of a, a worse issue with a virus that, you know, uh, frankly, most evidence is showing is spread through aerosol or airborne mm-hmm. short range mm-hmm. transmission. Yeah. It's so amazing how, you know, you're, you know, in 2001, you had September 11th, you had 3000 Americans were killed and Following that, we went through, and we're still going through, arguably, although it's debatable whether or not it's still afloat, given that we're living in the decline of the American empire, is the consequences of 9-11 were years in the making after the fact. You know, when it came down to, you know, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, uh, Homeland Security, black sites... TSA waterboarding like it's there insane. was so much that came to that that totally changed all of our lives you know the NSA snooping that Snowden that Edward Snowden revealed to the world because I, I I saw a statistic uh, before we started recording that uh, roughly the number of deaths now compared with 9/11 we've experienced 56 times the number of deaths that we experienced on 9/11 and wow. yet at that time. And in the time since, the defense budget grew so much, and yet the CDC budget remains so low, and we're living in the consequences of, well, this is what happens when you don't fund the CDC, and you not have a very dysfunctional government. And not and only it, was the budget low, but it was also cut Trump's first year of office. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he he kind of shot himself that, in the foot with that one, where it was like, well... <laughs> Well, it's just mind-boggling that there's this demand to return to normalcy, and yet it's kind of like this is more, this is bigger than anything else we've been through in our lives. How can you expect normalcy? You know, it's yeah. It's, yeah there's I, there's a great columnist, uh, Jane McManus, for I think mm-hmm. she writes for the New York Daily News. Okay. 
Um, she she keeps putting out these great tweets, and she's been doing it since the end of March. She she continuously is reiterating this message of you know um, mm. sports are the product of a functioning society. Yeah, and yep. you know America isn't functioning right now by any fucking stretch of anyone's imagination, except for Trump and all of his cronies. So. When you think yeah. of sports as the product of a functioning society and think of how it's been, you know, really jammed down our throats and, uh, you know, honestly, probably stretching resources thin in some areas, especially in Florida, a place that's impacted so heavily by coronavirus right now due to the negligence of their governor and their own governments within mm-hmm. their counties. So we're dealing with such an unfunctional society. And when you have the hyper capitalism like i keep trying to reiterate it just mm. it leads to this incredible incredible you know environment that we're dealing with now where uh people are really doing everything they can to make a buck while uh stretching resources from people that are dying from a virus you know there's so much of it that's so hard to fathom and yet you know i, I remember I, I was talking with my parents before uh before we started recording and in a lot of ways you know you there's times where you almost want to ask yourself well this you know our our country makes a lot of dumb decisions when it comes down to you know elections and you know who to support who to back which party you know deserves more attention than the other why not have a third party oh you don't want to hear that argument oh sorry whoops i'll just run away like it's when you have so much of that happening and then you tackle on the pandemic and then you tackle on, you know, just the inherent nature of capitalism. And on top of that, you have a society that is so, you know, desanitized in a way when it comes to things like death, poverty, uh, racism, bigotry. It, it You almost reach the point where it's like if it's November 3rd or Hell, it's probably not even going to be November third when we find out the results. But oh if, gosh, I I think about it every day. The election. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, I I had a I had an evening this last week where I I literally stayed up till two in the morning just going over <laughs> every every possible scenario in my head. I was like I I was uh, going I was going out of my mind. What's and mind the, you, I have no skin in the your, game. What's like, your what's, my ultimate horror uh, horror movie idea? Or I don't even know if it's a like it just seems so realistic at this point. It just seems like Trump is so ready to send DHS into every Democratic uh, yeah. town in America and and you know hold ballots hostage and burn well, and ballots even, and wipe yeah. their asses with them and claim they went missing. I mean, it's gonna. We're going to be dealing with such clownery for, like, that election, like, and it's so, Mm. what it really does is, and it's kind of great how you brought it up, Ryan, you know, you say how this is all, you know, a lot of people love to point the finger at Trump, and it's so, that's one thing, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying, Sebastian, what have I tried to do recently? I've tried to make sure I include Mitch McConnell and Barr in every cartoon I do of Trump, because (laughs) I I want to remind people, because... It's important that we need to remind people this isn't just Trump. This is GOP. This is, you know, conservatism mm-hmm. from from what it was with Reagan, uh, from what it was with Nixon and how Reagan changed those messages. And then how, you know, both of the 
uh, George W's changed the messages of those two losers. And mm-hmm. It's all the reiterated garbage, but it always stems back to the same, you know, bullshit practices, which love to demean people and demean the other and be racist, frankly. So, I mean, it's really, mm-hmm. uh, it's when you look at 2000 to now, and then like Ryan had said, I, like one thing that instantly pops in my head is now uh, Florida and how, yeah. Who knows what the hell even happened in Florida in 2000 with uh, Jeb being the governor and all the ballots and all that stuff. Like, it's such conspiracy stuff. Donald Trump's crony, uh, Roger Stone, who he uh, not that long ago commuted his sentence. Roger Stone was in Florida when the recount happened. And the, the GOP in Florida was reaching out to him, basically saying, we need you to fix this, i.e., we need you to get George Bush to win. So I, there's there's so it's many insane. there's so much connective tissue from Rush Limbaugh and you know political commentary and like, all these guys. Trump yeah, Trump's guys. lawyer. Trump's personal lawyer was dying from AIDS, which he was denying that he was dying from AIDS. And because he was buddies with Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan, he was able to make a few phone calls and get an experimental drug that was being used. Or it was an experimental drug that I think the CDC was developing, but it wasn't being tested. And Ronald Reagan basically gave that to Roy Cohn. And this is the slimiest, worst lawyer in New York City history. And he worked for Donald <laughs> Trump and he was best friends with Ronald Reagan. God. You know, it's 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 so interconnected. And yet you have people like, you know, my folks will be like, oh, well, George Bush, I'd rather have him again. And it's like, yeah, but you're complaining about. The federal hate the basically the border patrol in Portland and Seattle, they're there not because of Trump, but because George Bush made it legal for them to be there. But don't forget, not just George Bush, also a and also a lot of Democrats too. That's true. Like oh, no, a lot of people voted on both sides to make DHS mm-hmm. the thing. That was a pretty aisle hopping year. <laughs> yep. And it's one of those things. It's like voting for the, you know, war in Iraq, voting for all that stuff. It's I mean, think about all the people that voted against those things and were, you know, told they weren't Americans, told they weren't patriots, when really they're the most humanitarian people that we could even ask for. And even they mostly suck. So that's yeah. it shows how awful a lot of our representation is in Senate and Congress and in the House for the last, you know, God, for a long time on both it's, ends of the spectrum. For a lot of these people, you almost can't even say the last 20 years because, you know, Joe Biden's been losing elections uh, since at least the 80s. You know, yeah, he's been. It's br- the, oh. the records never hold up, right? No, they they just don't. It's oh, um, so we we still got a little bit of time left. I I wanted to ask um because I know we we kind of hinted at it earlier, but uh, kind of circumnavigating the the sphere of time here, um. You know, I guess tell us a little bit about because I, I know that after after you you left CSUN, you graduated. I, I you at some point went to LA Weekly to work with them. Um, yeah, I got you know I got really lucky uh, after CSUN. I gosh, it might have only been a month after I graduated, but I had a buddy that worked uh, at. LA Weekly within the marketing department within their street team, which would kind of like help pass out merch and stuff like that at different events, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Throughout Los Angeles. 
And he uh, got me an interview to get on that street team. And I ended up interviewing with them and they gave me a part-time marketing job. And it was really a great experience. And um, it's kind of funny to think how short my time there actually was. I think Mm -hmm. I might have started my job, who knows, in maybe May. uh, And then I was already out of there by December of that same year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that was when so, everything kind of came apart was in December, I remember. It was really, it really was awful. You know, I, I'd been lucky to work there, but uh, all of a sudden we were informed uh, that there were, that we were being sold. You know, the paper was being sold. The mm-hmm. former ownership group, BMG, was going to sell it to this new group of guys that had all put their money together and were going to buy it. And, you know, long story short, I was, a lot of us were, you know, interested to see who it might be. We're hoping it was going to be, who knows, you know, some type of uh, celebrity that didn't care about anything, but just wanted to give us money to do cool journalism or whatever. (laughs) Like that was our prayer. And of course it ended up being a group of uh, libertarian conservatives from Orange County who didn't know one fucking thing about LA. You know, it was, it was definitely uh, interesting to be a part of the transition at the beginning and you know they had they had really bought in the paper um and you'll see this with a lot of things i mean it's like the tesla type of commodification of the name you know they bought mm-hmm. they bought the paper just because la weekly is such a strong brand name essentially within la or within journalism within la and they knew that they could weaponize that in order to make a buck they were they were expecting to use the name and create uh different type of content from marijuana stuff to uh you know different types of web series and hopefully then into production of different types of you know maybe tv who who knows they had so many grandiose ideas to turn Mm. it into essentially vice of los angeles you know yeah they really wanted to they really wanted to create like an infomercial of a lot of different things. And it was amazing to hear them talk about, you know, uh, swaying away from reporters doing film reviews and uh, profiles and instead having uh, like the person that starred in the movie, just tell you why the movie's awesome and rocks. Like it was just legendary. Oh. Like uh, let's totally make this an advertorial and it's going to be paid for and people are going to suck it up just because we have the LA weekly name. And of right. course they're proven wrong. The LA market has not, has not followed them one bit. If you look at their journalism, it's, it's been just horrendous since mm-hmm. 2017 or since 2018. And it's all, it all looks like crap for them and it hasn't been anything even worthy of reading or touching. So, I mean, it is interesting to see, how important that you know ownership is and yeah they the paper i could tell that things were going to get sketchy i was only with the new ownership group for about two weeks and then i quit and i was lucky Mm -hmm. enough to have la taco uh allow me to you know tell my story and talk about all that stuff there and that was that was definitely crazy for me because i you know i had a lot of people that were still at the la weekly um, you know, anonymously attack me and anonymous, anonymously come at me. You come to find them all 
you know, without jobs just a few weeks later because they're getting purged by the owner, you know, because he's stabbing them in the back. You know, it was definitely eye opening. And I had people reach out to me after and go, hey, sorry, I said X, Y and Z. He did me dirty. You were right. Blah, blah. And it's 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 just amazing because all of those things happen in private. And mm. all of the people that were there were such cowards to stand up to them. And I might yeah. have been the only one that was retained that actually quit in the beginning, I think. And okay. it's just, it, it was pretty, it was definitely one of those interesting moments for me of just understanding the, you know, how people in power uh, are allowed to get away with things if they're not held accountable mm-hmm. and if you can't unionize. If everyone was unionized in their uh, idea of not, supporting the new ownership group and wanting to essentially boycott within within the inside and mm-hmm. they all caved they all caved so it's just one of those really eye-opening moments for me of like the importance of you know collective uh messaging and unionization of workers within a place and mm-hmm. look what ended up happening just a few weeks after i quit a lot of them were fired or lost their jobs or didn't have a, another place to go because they weren't ready for it you know, I was lucky then. I didn't have a son. Um, I do now. I couldn't imagine <laughs> quitting the job with my kid now. But, uh, you know, back then I didn't. I was able to make those uh, choices. And I did go jobless for a long time after that. I think it was mm-hmm. kind of hard to get a, a job and an interview after that unless people understood where I was coming from, you know. Again, another eye-opening moment for me um, to quit and then to have Ellie Taco publish that and then to have Ellie Taco uh that's, you know, the beginning of my relationship with them and them having the faith in me to publish that piece and to put out there uh, a lot of what I dealt with with the L.A. Taco new, or with the L.A. Weekly new ownership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the most to, to put the chair on top of all that, the most uh, vindicating thing really was the ownership group ended up tearing each other uh, apart from the inside like the hmm. parasites they were they ended up suing each other they ended up uh in a long litigation that played out in a mess uh throughout different articles on the internet and within the mm-hmm. la times uh they looked as foolish as they are uh to the public and now i couldn't even tell you what ragtag group of morons runs that place it's mm-hmm. such a shit show so it's amazing to me what the LA Weekly turned into and what I knew it was going to turn into. And it's nice to see it all play out in public. It it was so insane watching everything go down. Because I, I remember, I think it was Kenny who sent me uh, your, your article, your first article to LA Taco about what happened to you at LA Weekly. And I remember I was working at a restaurant at the time and... <laughs> Like, like I'm, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna sound like I'm a fan, I'm like I'm a, you know, mega fan. Uh, but I, I remember at some point while I was working, I started showing your article to people at the restaurant I was working at, and these are people that I also <laughs> knew had interests in journalism or, or yeah, podcasting, yeah. and they saw the article and they were like, whoa, like they were losing their minds over it, and I was just sitting in the corner, like you know, melting like a imploded volcano because it was just. You know, LA Weekly, to me, at least, it was it was something that was a side of LA that I liked, and it was a side of LA that I identified with 
in a weird way with kind of with my childhood. Um, but that was just because a lot of yeah, the, a lot of the stuff it published, it, it felt like stuff that I remembered when I lived closer to Los Angeles. But and and on top of that, like even when we were at CSUN, I remember every time I would see an LA Weekly in one of those little because they used to have them in some of the little uh, boxes or carts or whatever you call them. Yeah. yeah, like you could pick one of those up, and I think I still have two of them, and I still need I still need to read them. Ooh. Um, it's been so long, um, different regime. Um, but it, it, you know, like they were, but then to see this red wedding happen and that was what everybody, everyone in the SoCal news bubble, you know, everyone basically looked at LA weekly as like its own atrocity in a way, you know, like, like every publication has its, its casualties and it has its failings but this was like this was a true massacre you know and the fact that the name la weekly survived but the meaning behind it didn't and and i think that's yep. where la taco kind of fill in fills in that role and i, I i've since become a subscriber because it's like <laughs> i can't afford to let la taco go <laughs> you know i i love what you guys do over there i we We've been referencing LA Taco stories since this podcast began. They they they've got their finger on the pulse of LA, period. And you know, other than the LA Times, which you know has been here a million years, that's not true uh, since the 1880s. It is, it is um, so hit or miss. It, it's kind of like, and and especially where I am, because I I went through kind of a a similar situation uh, about six months or so after what happened at LA Weekly, where the publication that I was working at gained a new ownership, but it, there was a lot of backlash because of the fact that the ownership had political views that, granted, were uh, they were in line with a good portion of the community, but for a newspaper, it was alarming because it's like you've got pro-Trump people running a newspaper in a in a in a very contested region of of Los Angeles County like it was it was a recipe for disaster and in the time well, since I mean they've been consistently conservative to a point but it's kind of like come on people like we're just trying to do journalism here we don't need to be you know Ben Bradley anointing Kennedys right the unfortunate you know truth that a lot of journalists end up accepting is that you know most most media companies are owned and run by conservatives you know um Mm. i've only been so lucky that la taco isn't you know what i mean um not a lot of media companies can say that same thing la taco is so independent uh and i couldn't imagine working for a publication that you know would even try to peddle out some of the stuff that some of the other publications do that are Mm -hmm. owned by conservatives you know and what's scary to me is what has happened to local news in general. You know, local news is so uh, heavily consumed. And mm-hmm. when you look at Sinclair uh, Broadcast, Group, oh. which is a conservative-owned yeah. you know, local broadcast company, which owns more local stations across the country than any other company, uh, and mm-hmm. peddles out just as batshit crazy conspiracy theories as Fox News every night. Like, that's a scary thought to me. And it kind of goes back to what you just said, Ryan. You know, I had when mm-hmm. all the 
shit hit the fan at LA Weekly and I quit, I reached out to professors that I admired and were really mentors uh, mm-hmm. at Cal State Northridge and got a lot of good advice. But I also had one professor that I really admire and that I'm not going to name because I, it's not to her fault at all why she did this. But mm-hmm. she recommended to me, I, you know, I'm going over everything with her and she says, I've got a job for you. I know the person, they'll take you, blah, blah, blah. Like, just Mm -hmm. say the word and I'll send the stuff, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, like, that's incredible. I'm so lucky to have you as a resource. Like, what's the job? And she's like, it's a reporter for Sinclair Broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) So I literally just quit LA Weekly for this whole, like, you know, moral, you know, uh, deep within me like I can't work for these corrupt uh, crony conservatives and mm-hmm. here you know one of my biggest mentors is pushing me towards uh, a gig at Sinclair you know yeah and that that was and it was some it's somebody it wasn't it, it, it is somebody that I admire and respect I truly do but it's mm-hmm. also one of those epic encapsulations of what the problem is fundamentally for you know, progressives really within media that are always uh, uh, shouted down and uh, combated against Mm -hmm. with this whole objectivity narrative. You know, uh, the only people that create the theme of objectivity are the people that want to create the theme of power and want to maintain power, you know. And Mm -hmm. I've never been one to, uh, to subject myself to the thought of classic journalistic objectivity because uh, mm-hmm. no one has it and to claim you do is such a, a a falsehood of what the practice of storytelling is i mean journalism storytelling as much as people don't want to agree with that you're taking uh information and you're relaying that information you write a write-up from a police report you're just regurgitating the story that the police wants you to tell you're a storyteller mm-hmm. You, there's no difference. So it's objectivity is really just uh, comes down to who's telling the message and what they want to find the object truth in. It's it's really not hard to understand. It's 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 unfortunate that so many journalists are uh, really spat down on when they try not to fall in line with that lame narrative. So that's that's yeah. that's that's how I always look at that. Mm-hmm. Now, before before we let you go, uh, Sebastian, I don't know if you had any other questions you wanted to ask uh, for Tommy before we let him go. Uh, I'm personally good. Uh, I just, you know, I can't wait to see more of your work. And I mean, I can I can sit here and sing your praises all day. But I mean, dude, you're you're really trucking out there. <laughs> no, no, really. Like you're, you're really trucking out there. Appreciate because you. you have not only that artistic know how to buck up and get started but that platform to catapult yourself into you know so many new directions and i think as as disheartening as it is for other artists i don't think every artist has that opportunity to do so so you know hold on tight and just don't let go yeah no i think that honestly that I was trying to get to that point, but I make my answers so incredibly long and winded. And I appreciate you guys even sitting through them. You're, you're honestly the greatest. But uh, oh, I mean, I mean that's... one of your one of your earlier questions though. That's like the main thing is that there's I, I'm just there's so many more people that are talented 
than me, smarter than me, and better at doing what they do. I've just been so lucky that I've ran into and bumped into some great people that have given me opportunities along the way, you know? Mm. So it really does. It's unfortunate to say, but it comes down to, you know, putting yourself out there, taking those risks, and then uh, meeting people and trying to take advantage of those connections that you make from people seeing your stuff and saying hey that's that's dope we should you know collaborate on something like that and then that's how that type of stuff happens so it's really about i mean my only advice to anyone would be take risks and you know be prepared to answer for your risks and also be prepared to learn it's you know the goal for all of us right now should be to learn something new every day and continue that until we take our last breath yeah. Definitely. And and on top of that, uh, if you ever needed a, a new outlook, how to draw Donald Trump, I, I highly recommend checking out Ellie Valley. His artwork. Number oh, one, his artwork, dude. I was going to, you know, earlier uh-huh. I was going to say he's one of my inspirations, man. He's because oh, he, what real? he does that I've been trying to do is, uh, you know, take quotes. It's an obvious gag of his is taking, you know, incredibly ignorant shit that politicians say uh, and then drawing the politician you know acting out performatively you know something way more outrageous than what they're actually saying but still Mm -hmm. giving off you know showing what they're saying so i really love him he's one of those guys that i respect so much oh i do too he's i i i still need to read his book but the way he draws trump is like 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 sebastian i'll, I'll send you a, an image later on instagram but it's the best like way a, to, like a it looks like a furry like ewok with like a, a gremlin and like i don't even know how yeah to keep like, going. it's well, well to keep it within the star wars family it's like if jabba the hut and a naked mole rat had a baby <laughs> like because he's he looks like a hut but he's got buck teeth and the Trump hair. Oh, it's, it's grotesque. I think that's your grotesque. Oh, mm, perfect. And and I, I gotta ask, how's uh, how's the family? How's everyone doing in uh, in quarantine? Man, we've been on. I'm, I'm not sure how it's been for you guys. You know, it's been a God. Can you just talk about <laughs> how these last few months have been for everyone trying to you know figure out how to game plan and go about every day and seemingly what we thought would be weeks and has turned into months, you know, half a year Mm -hmm. now, you know, uh, for us, you know, it's me, my fiance and our little son. And it's, it's definitely been fun having the time to like work on things around the house because I can't go outside or I don't have the ability to like do things outside or have fun outside. If if Mm. fun's even the word, I guess I should Mm. say, I guess I should say we're getting more organized than fun. But the fun, the fun happens with my son. You know, we've done uh, so much to create an environment inside the house where he can play around and still do the kid things. And, you know, to say I'm not having fun every day with him would be a lie, but he definitely mm-hmm. makes me forget about how awful the world is on the outside, you know. But it's definitely, for all of us, has been an adjustment. My son was just starting to walk right in March, right mm-hmm. when this happened. Uh, he still hasn't even jumped into a pool down in my hometown where, I, where I'm where i from, in Coachella Valley at my parents' place. 
you know, I don't have a pool out here in LA and I'm not going to take him to anybody's goddamn pool with coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for my fiance and I, we've been, uh, you know, she, she essentially will hit the store and we'll hit the post office and I'll hit like the bank or the store. But that's all that's those are the only places we go. And we we've mm-hmm. been masking, you know, we've been masking and gloving up since the end of March, the beginning of April. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, we've been we've been paranoid. We've been keeping up with this. I I watched Contagion in the beginning of March, you know, so I, I was all caught up. Was, we've 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 talked at length about plague entertainment, whether it's Albert Camus or Outbreak with Dustin uh, Hoffman. So for me, I I saw somebody today do a funny, uh, uh, you know, quarantine so far has seasons like Tiger King and Contagion was season one, and then there was season two, which has been you know what all the other different crazy shit that's happened, and now we're in like season three or four, however you want to define it. I mean, it's just awful, the, the seasons of craziness that we've tried to inundate ourselves with to, you know, drown out the deaths and the the totals. I mean, it's so, I'm sure you can see from some of the past cartoons I've done, I mean, it's hard, it's hard not to pay attention to the news and to continuously doom scroll, but you just try to find yourself uh, some things to do to get away from it for a second, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's TV or uh, video games for a little bit and or like I was saying you know hanging out with family like my son or people that you're quarantining with but yeah. yeah I know for us it's been a complete quarantine and uh complete scoffing at friends and family on mm. uh, social media that aren't quarantining <laughs> or that are reaching out to us and they're like hey let's hang out or, or come on down like the pandemic's over and we're like what game show is this like <laughs> come on down no way you get coronavirus oh but, uh, if, yeah, if like, anything I've been, I've been very paranoid you you just gotta you just gotta throw the jaws analogies in their face and maybe they'll get it like cause that, oh, that's yeah. what i've been doing this whole time sebastian can attest to it it's been a jaws reference at least once every other if not every episode would i be it's am beautiful. i right in saying that Sebastian Mancini, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to say this without being pushy, but if we get into another argue, if we get into another conversation about this, it's gonna be another goddamn episode. <laughs> We're gonna need a bigger boat. So put a, a bigger podcast. We're gonna need a bigger episode. Put a cork in it at least for now. I will. I will. Thomas, thank you so so much for for joining us. Uh, you know, I I've I've said all of my all of my stuff about wanting to have you on, but it's, it's so good to hear from you. It's so good to know you're, you're hanging in there and you know, we all, we all are in our own way. Uh, where can the good people find you in regards to social media, your artwork and all of the above? Oh man. Appreciate you. You already know feelings likewise. And uh, thanks so much guys for having me on. Um, you can find me on, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at i am tommy g i'm pretty sure yeah yeah that's gotta be it and then i'm on i'm on instagram at that same type of thing instagram uh tommy jg so a little bit different but yeah no find me on those things and uh you know like i'd said appreciate all the hyping up and all the wishes about the art like really means a lot and i can't wait to get some stuff for you guys made and uh 
especially can't wait for you guys to see the stuff I've got coming out in the future. Yeah, man, we're excited, and and hopefully at some point we can get you to uh, get to know the the third the third the silent beetle on Mars on Life, Zachary Erbrick. He's he was our illustrator for our artwork for the show. Sebastian, where can the good people find you? All right, so running down the laundry list, uh, you can find me in a plethora of places. Uh, social media is your jam. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the handle of Dr. Sebi. That's D-R-S-E-B-B-Y for Instagram and D-R underscore S-E-B-B-Y for Twitter. I fucking hate Twitter. It's a hellscape, <laughs> but I still have one because I'm thinking about getting back into it and posting like cheesy one-liners. I used to do that. Um, it's pretty much any. It's pretty much anything worthwhile you can do on that platform. I'm without, game if you are. Without sounding it's like a without sounding like a complete tool. You know, and like activism aside, um, it's fucking annoying. It's not even like political activism. It's like TikTok girl activism, which mm. I can't stand for the life of me. Anyway, uh, if you like daily uploaded narrations, feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's at Seabass, like the fish. Yeah. As well as my audio archive, uh, Shugsy Storytime. Uh, it's basically, like I said, an audio archive of every single thing uploaded on my YouTube. If you're a fan of music, feel free to follow me wherever you stream music. Um, that's under the name just Shugzy, S-C-H-U-G-Z-Y. I recently released a new album called Somebody Call an Ambulance, and honestly, I feel like it's pretty prescient given the times. Um, yeah, so if you're into <laughs> lo-fi or alternative, feel free to uh, let me know what you think. Also, and last but not least, if you have a manuscript, feel free to send it my way at Sebastian Shug Publishing, either via email or phone. Uh, yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. Just new projects in the works and uh, pacing myself in in doing so. Off to you, Ryan. All righty. So uh, when I'm not reading uh, Gore Vidal's book, 1876, which is about <laughs> one of the most fraudulent elections in American history, uh, you can you find me even on fucking Instagram. There, bro. You weren't hey, even there. <laughs> neither was Gore Vidal, but you know what? You got it right. Um, you can find me on uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mancini R.A., uh, watching the the complete and utter devastation of anything remotely close to what you could call discourse and uh when it comes to instagram you can always find me uh preaching uh as the beatles would say that all you need is love and on instagram you can find me at mancini ryan and my god love is all we seriously need right about now we hit that magical part of the show in which we love to tell you, welcome to Mars. Welcome to Mars. There's life on Mars. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Great Scott, he discovered the secret. <laughs> well, Mr. Versetti, I mean, Mr. Gallegos, it has been a pleasure. It really has. Um, thank you so much for coming on our show. And uh, really, Godspeed. Appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Definitely keep in touch and let me know whenever you need me again. Thank you for listening to Mars on Life. You can find us over on Instagram and on Twitter at Mars on Life Show. Uh, in terms of listening to the show, you can find us wherever podcasts are found. Uh, that includes Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Anchor, and Radio Public. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel. That way you can find our full catalog of episodes. Our artwork is done by Zachary Erbrick, and our intro music is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. I've been Ryan Mancini. My co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. And just remember, if you keep on going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs>